If they're playing behind the sticks at home against this Georgia defense, that can pin their ears back and come after the quarterback. Could be a long day for Joe Milton and company. Hello and welcome in. It is a Thursday edition of Always College Football. We appreciate you being here. It is November 16th. We have a great slate of games that we're looking forward to this weekend. I'm Greg McElroy. I appreciate you coming to us from wherever it is you're coming to us from. If you're on the Apple Podcast platform, please go ahead and leave us a review. Leave us a rating. Go ahead and subscribe. Go ahead and, and subscribe if you're on Spotify. Leave us a rating, whatever. Like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. And if you're here with us via the ESPN YouTube channel, subscribe to the College Football page. Hit that thumbs up button right below. And let's have a conversation in the comments right below. We appreciate you being here. It's going to be a great day. Thursdays are our favorite day. Why? Because it's preview time, man. There's a lot of great games this weekend. There's a bunch of games in the conferences, in the SEC, a game or two in the ACC that are leaving something to be desired. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, not very exciting slate there in southern part of the United States. But we still have very intriguing options in other spots. We have a great game involving Utah and Arizona, a game that's probably not going to get broken down in a lot of places, but it'll be broken down here. We're going to break down Washington and Oregon State because I think that game might be the most intriguing game on the docket, especially considering a top five team on the road that's an underdog against a team that's ranked, but a team that has a couple losses, a team that's undefeated, it's an underdog. What's up with that? Alarms and bells and whistles going off. You got Georgia on the road at Tennessee. Again, they would normally take top billing. You got Texas vying for a playoff spot on the road at Iowa State. You got Louisville vying for a playoff spot on the road at, at Miami. So a lot of very interesting matchups. We also have some games that are going to determine who plays in the Big 12 title game. A game or two that will break down that will determine who's going to play in the Big 10 title game and who is going to play potentially in the ACC title game as well. So we don't want to waste any more time. Let's get to the breakdowns. It's our favorite day of the week. Let's dive into some of these breakdowns. This weekend preview is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It's not college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper. So we broke things up here a little bit. We usually kind of just go based on what time the game is being played. Sometimes it's a random order. Sometimes it's in the order in which the college football committee has these teams ranked, but we decided to pair it up a little differently. We're going to start with great games involving playoff contenders. And then we're going to move to just great games without playoff implications. Then we're going to move to some conference championship worthy matchups where they'll have an impact potentially on the conference championship. So that's kind of how we broke things up. And then we have a bunch of big favorites, a la Michigan, Ohio State, and others that we'll hit on as well as we move forward here in the breakdowns. All right, so let's start with number five, Washington taking on the Oregon State Beavers. This will be in Corvallis. It's going to be Saturday, 7.30 Eastern time on ABC. Washington clinches a spot in the Pac-12 title game with a win or an Arizona loss. The Huskies are 10-0 to start the season for the second time in program history. The other time was in 91 when they finished the season 12-0 and split the national title with the Miami Hurricanes. And they opened the season by destroying everybody. Now, they've still been undefeated, but five of their last six games have come by just single digits, the lone exception being their 10-point win against the Trojans. So last week, in case you missed the breakdowns earlier in the week, uh, the defense was what really stepped up. 
And now I think it's going to be a, an increased challenge for them to corral DJ Uyunglele and a really good run game for Oregon State. Oregon State's been in every game this year. They lost two games. Uh, both were on the road and both were by three points. But they've really put together a really nice run under Jonathan Smith in recent years. The first question in this game, will Washington be able to stop the run? That's the biggest question. I mean, the Huskies defense, they've struggled to stop the run against pretty much every team that had a decent run game. And the Beavers might be the best one they've seen up to this point, considering what Damian Martinez has done. It's really a two-headed monster, and you could almost make it a three-headed monster, knowing that DJ Uyunglele is kind of showcasing the ability to keep you honest with the quarterback run game, too. Damian Martinez is the bell cow. He's flanked by Deshaun Fenwick. Both guys average a ridiculous number. Uh, you look at Martinez, he's like 6.6 yards per carry. And then Deshaun Fenwick's at just under six. And then DJ Uyunglele, like I referenced, he's in the mix as well. So the group as a whole, they're ninth in college football in yards per carry, averaging about five and a half or so. Of course, that factors in sacks, and there weren't many of those, but still five and a half or so on the ground on the play-by-play -play basis. Washington, on the other hand, they're 84th in college football against the run, 4.4 yards per carry. The other thing that's crazy about these backs that Oregon State will trot out there, they're fourth in college football in yards after contact. They average three-plus yards after contact per carry. Washington is 83rd. So they're not great at the second level or third level when it comes to dropping a guy upon initial contact. So that is going to be a significant question mark for Washington. Will they be able to stop the run? Well, even if they can, guess what? Here comes the play action for Oregon State. DJ Uyunglele at Clemson is a very different guy than he is right now. So far on throws that are traveling 20-plus yards downfield, big plays, shot plays. He's 24 of 49. That's near 50%. That's among the top numbers in all of college football, especially considering how many attempts he has. A lot of the guys that have big, big percentage numbers and slight advantages as far as completion percentage, they have fewer attempts. So he's taken a bunch of shots, and he's been very effective on those, 10 to 1 on touchdown and interceptions off of play action this year as well. And that interception came way back in week three against San Diego State. And I think the receiver core, for the most part, for Oregon State is very underrated. Uh, Anthony Gold's a solid option. Silas Bolden is very solid. The tight end, Jack Veiling, leads receivers at, uh, leads the receivers with touchdowns. He only has 27 catches, but he's got eight touchdowns. So they're going to get him involved there in the red zone as well. And DJ's been really smart. Will it continue? This might be the biggest platform he's played on this year. And there's going to be a lot of eyeballs. And there were times at Clemson where the pressure kind of melted around on DJ and he didn't always rise to the occasion, which ultimately led Clemson and in going into a different direction. Well, this year he's been excellent. 20 to 4 touchdown interception ratio and the 47 explosive pass plays this year is tied for sixth in college football amongst quarterbacks that have qualified. So he's playing at a really high level and deserves to be commended for resurrecting his career under Jonathan Smith and company. Very impressed by them. The other side of the coin is Oregon State's defense. Can they cover Washington? We all know what Washington has as far as their weapons are concerned. Roma Dunze, third in the country. Jalen Polk, 11th in the country in total yardage. Guys are unbelievable. And then we all know just how good Michael Penix is too.
He's excellent. And I honestly, if I look at Oregon State, while their coverage numbers aren't bad, I think there's opportunities. If you watch the first half against Washington State, maybe that was the worst performance, so maybe we saw them on their lowest point. They were having a tough time on throws that were accurately accurately placed down the field. So I'm not sure they're going to be able to cover these guys. Uh, I think it's going to be a real tall task, even though, like I said, as far as opposing quarterback rating and all those numbers, they actually are relatively favorable. But one thing they can do to make life a little difficult, if they can't cover them, they can at least attack because this group defensively in the front for Oregon State, they're very stout as far as getting after the quarterback. 36 sacks registered this season. That's fifth in college football. Michael Penix is going to have to play great. I think he will, and I think it will be an excellent game that will be decided in the red zone. I think both defenses are going to struggle in this game. I think they're really going to struggle in this game. We know what Washington is offensively. We know that they can light up the scoreboard. Just, I mean, how many times this year have we seen them just look like it's a video game? But Oregon State is no slouch. They're third in the FBS in red zone touchdown percentage. They score touchdowns on 81% of their red zone penetrations. And Washington is struggling there in the red zone defensively. They're 113th. So that is, I think, what's going to decide the game. You cannot beat Washington by kicking field goals. But if Oregon State can stay efficient on the ground and control the line of scrimmage, they have a real chance to pull off the upset. Even though it's not an upset in Vegas right now, as of this moment, Oregon State's slightly favored. I'm taking the Beavers. I think they take, I think they match up really well against Washington. You know I love Washington. I think it'll be a very high-scoring affair, but I'm leaning in favor of Oregon State. They're very, very tough to play at home, and I feel like Washington's been playing with fire for a couple weeks. They get got, like we talked about on Wednesday's show. I really don't know if it's going to have a huge impact on where Washington ends up in the rankings on Tuesday. Even if they lose this one, I think they're still probably going to be fifth because you're really going to allow Oregon, with a comparable resume, to jump Washington, when Washington has the head-to-head, I don't think they will. So even if they lose, I'm not sure it makes a huge difference. It just obviously puts an extra amount of pressure to get to the Pac-12 title game with their game in the Apple Cup against Washington State. Let's move on to number one, Georgia Bulldogs. They're now traveling to Tennessee. This will be 3.30 Eastern time on CBS. With a win in Knoxville, Georgia will match the SEC record with its 28th consecutive victory. Okay, they haven't lost in a really long time. It's been pretty remarkable. Alabama has the record right now. They've done it twice from 78 to 80 and then again from 91 to 93. But Georgia is about to at least hit that with a big win this weekend and then could surpass that with the opportunity against Georgia Tech. Will there likely be a heavy favorite? Georgia is averaging about 41 points a game. So it's been different, I think, for Georgia this year. While they've been electric offensively the last couple of years, this year's group's a little methodical, and they've been a little banged up. I feel like this year's group has maybe overcome more adversity with the injuries that they've had to deal with along the offensive line, with Ladd McConkey being out of the lineup there early and then a little bit banged up in the last game, but it sounds like he's going to be okay. Bowers missed some time. Milton's missed some time. They've had some adversity this year, and they haven't dropped off from a productivity standpoint. Sixth in college football and points scored per game. Tennessee is also pretty good offensively, even though not nearly what they were a year ago. They're averaging about 32 points a game. But defensively, here's where it's going to be very interesting. Georgia's in the top six again, defensively allowing just under 16 points a game. And Tennessee, I was surprised at seeing this number because it felt like at least prior to the last couple of weeks, 
Tennessee defensively had made significant strides. They're allowing about 20 points per game, but they've come back to earth just a little bit in the last month or so. And I wonder if it's more about the competition ramping up or the fact that this group, maybe they're starting to get figured out just a hair. Tennessee's going to have to be great against the run uh, because Georgia has this newfound approach to running the football. It was really a lot about Carson Beck. And while Dejon Edwards has been serviceable, Milton now I think opens things up quite a bit for them. He broke out in a big way last week. And I would anticipate that continuing as they lean more on the run game as the season now is wearing on and team's depth is getting a little more challenged. And if you look, I think this is going to be very, very interesting. I mean, if Tennessee can take away the run, will they be able to kind of slow down the pass? I don't think so. I mean, I think Carson Beck's that good. I mean, you watched the game last week. I mean, even the interception was a perfectly placed football. You know, I mean, I just, I have so much faith in him. I have so much trust in him. I think he's big time. And while there have been occasional speed bumps, man, they have been few and far between. For a guy with this many expectations, for a guy with this big of shoes that he has to step into, I think he's been every bit as good as I could have ever anticipated from him. And if that can continue, they should be in really good shape, not just in this game, but in every game moving forward. How about Tennessee's run game? Uh, They've been really good on the ground this year. They're ninth in college football right now at 213 rushing yards per game. Georgia, on the other hand, this is one area where they're very different from where they've been in the past. Now, uh, total numbers aren't going to blow you away. They're allowing about 107 rushing yards per game. Obviously, that's pretty good. They've held five different opponents under 100. So there have been moments where it's been pretty good. But then again, there have also been moments where you're kind of left wondering, all right, are they quite as good in the front seven as they've been in the past? I think the answer is no. But that doesn't mean they're not good. They're just not Georgia good. Because Georgia in 21 and 22 has set a different standard. All right. Talked already a little bit about Tennessee's defense. But I think when you look at what Georgia's kind of turned into, they are a big play passing attack. And there's really hasn't been, now that you kind of look at Tennessee's schedule and removing yourself and kind of seeing it, the last couple of weeks, Tennessee's come back to earth in a big way. They gave up 10.5 yards in attempt to Jalen Milrow in Alabama. Then they allowed for Missouri to run for 255. Uh, so in those two games, Tennessee's been outscored 70 to 27. All right. So that I think is something they're going to need to get addressed because this Georgia offense is probably the best they've seen. And if Tennessee's not up to the task on that side of the ball, it could be a really long day. Now, Brock Bowers was back last week. That was significant. Uh, in his absence, I don't know if it was necessarily felt, but they're a significantly better team with him on the field. Even if it's just in a decoy role, you have to always know where number 19 is. It's as a blocker, as an end of the line guy, as a guy that you move out, a guy that you can just snap it straight to, a guy that you can hand it off to, put him at fullback, hand it off. They can do all those different things. So it was really good to get him back. And I would imagine he'll be even more comfortable this week because it was nice, even though that he was gone, Lad McConkey stepped right in. And the two games that Bowers missed, Lad McConkey had 13 receptions uh, and 230 yards. So McConkey rolled the ankle last week. He should be fine. Kirby Smart said he's he's good to go. He could have gone back in the game last week, but it's going to be nice to see this group at 100% health because I'm not sure we've seen it at any point this year. Another interesting side note in this one that I came across in preparing for the breakdown. Tennessee actually really struggles at home with penalties. I don't know why. They're 130th in penalties in home games this year. They average nine penalties per home game and about 80 yards. 
If they're playing behind the sticks at home against this Georgia defense, they can pin their ears back and come after the quarterback. Could be a long day for Joe Milton and company. And if you look at Joe Milton, it's been an okay season. Uh, there have been some good moments. There have been some bad moments. There's been some better moments there in the middle part of the season before things kind of fell down, fell down last week. But he's not really in a great spot right now as far as uh, where he's at with his accuracy. Uh, the completion percentage is not where you want it to be. He's 12th out of 12 amongst qualifiers. Uh, he's only ahead of Auburn, Peyton Thorne, and Kentucky's Devin Leary on adjusted completion percentage, which is not what you want. He also has one of the lowest yards per attempt, too. So he hasn't done a great job stretching the field, but he has done a good job, I think, making timely decisions in the run game. So his legs, now that he's healthy again, have been, an, I think, an asset to the Tennessee offense as a whole because you can't get overly aggressive knowing that Joe Milton does possess the ability to take off if the opportunity presents itself. Another big one in this one, third downs. Georgia's first and third down conversion rate. They're unbelievable, all right? For 56% of the time on third down. Meanwhile, Tennessee, not quite as good, about 45%. So that's a pretty significant gap between where Georgia's at and where Tennessee's at. And if third downs are the ultimate differentiator, then Georgia will have a pretty significant advantage. A couple trends in this one, Georgia's 4-0 against the spread in the last four meetings against Tennessee. They're also 11-4 against the spread against ranked opponents since 2021. Tennessee, meanwhile, they're 4-11 against the spread as an underdog since 2020. So all the trends point to Georgia in this one. That's where I'd lean as well. I think Georgia handles their business. I think they're peaking at the right time and are getting better and should handle their business on the road against a Tennessee team that I think will hang in there for a while, but ultimately they'll get pulled away from in the second half of the football game. Number seven, Texas now travels to Ames, Iowa. This will be Saturday night, 8 o'clock Eastern time on Fox. Texas clinches a spot in the Big 12 title game with the win and losses by at least two of the following three, Kansas State, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma State. We'll get into the Big 12 tiebreaker scenario in just a minute, but just know Texas wins, they're in. Should be in pretty good shape. All right, Iowa State has won four of their last five after starting the season two and three. So things have started to kind of roll in the right direction, and if you look at how they've fared in the past, they've done a pretty decent job against Texas in the past. Now, the Longhorns, they've lost three of the last four against Iowa State and Ames, but they are a heavy favorite here in this one. Iowa State also has a path to the Big 12 title game. They'd have to win out, have Oklahoma lose once. All right, They also have probably the most difficult two-game stretch amongst all the contenders to finish up. Texas at their place, and they're on the road at K-State next week. So it's unlikely that Iowa State finds a way, but if they can pull this one off like they have in the past, and maybe they have a chance. I think a lot of this is going to have to do with the start. And I know that sounds probably counterintuitive <laughs> given how Texas has played in the second half of football games and multiple occasions this year. Houston game, big lead. Houston came back. Kansas State game, big lead. They came back. We saw it last week against TCU. Huge lead. TCU scores 24th quarter points. Next thing you know, it's a ball game. But if you look at how things have gone for Iowa State, in Beck's 10 starts, all right, Rocco Beck's starting quarterback, it's been really important that the Cyclones start fast. Iowa State is 4-0 and this season when they score first and 1-4 and when the opponent scores first. They're also 5-0 and when leading at halftime 
and winless when they're tied or trailing at the half. So we know Texas is a great first-half football team. We've seen that for a long time, dating back to when Sark took over the job in 21. I can think in 21 and end in 22, how many different times they had a first-half lead only to let things slip away in the second half. Well, that's continued this year, but they've made the play at the end to flip momentum back in their favor and ultimately steal the game. But either way, I think it's going to be imperative for Iowa State to come out of the gates in a fast, fast manner and put some of the pressure and to get involved the home field, put some of the pressure on the Longhorn sideline. Another thing that's going to be really important for Iowa State if they want to pull the upset, they have to do a great job protecting Beck. They've allowed just nine sacks this year, so that has not been a significant issue for them. But if you look at Texas's defensive line, this will be the best defensive line Iowa State's faced. With all due respect to Iowa, who is an excellent defensive group top to bottom, I think Texas has more game records along the front than Iowa does, at least at the moment. More in sheer quantity. Texas has a bunch of guys up front. They're going to play a really long time in the NFL. So I think it's going to be really difficult for Iowa State to protect as well as they have, but they're going to have to. If they don't, it's going to be tough. Take advantage of what I think is the weakness of the Texas football team. It's their secondary. Texas is number 12 in the Big 12 and 106th in the country in pass defense. They're giving up about 250 a game through the year. Now, a lot of those uh, yards might, according to people that follow the team, a lot of those yards might come in garbage time. But I, I don't look at it that way because a lot of the games were garbage time for a moment and then it wasn't garbage time anymore because the game got tight. But here's a few of the quarterbacks that have played well in the last four weeks against Texas. Josh Hoover for TCU, he was 24 of 36 for 302, two touchdowns and a pick. Kansas State's Will Howard was 26 of 41 for 327, four touchdowns and one interception. Then Houston's Donovan Smith was 32 of 46 for 378, three to one touchdown to interception ratio. Well, in comes Rocco Becht. I think it's an underrated offense, and Beck's done a pretty good job this year. 15-7 to touchdown and interception, and has been pretty solid as far as his decision-making is concerned. He's going to have to play the best game of his career. I look at the Iowa State wide receivers, I think they're fine. I think they're fine, I think they're solid, and I would argue that they're probably even a little bit underrated when looking at the rest of the teams in the Big 12. But do they have enough big play potential to take advantage of a secondary that has had some moments this year that you would like to forget. Quinn Ewers and company without Jonathan Brooks, I will also be interested to see, is there a drop-off there offensively for the Longhorns? Jonathan Brooks has been the bell cow. He's been the guy that's really uplifted this offense since he was inserted in the lineup in week three. CJ Baxter's a talented guy, a really talented guy, and earned the start opening day because he beat out Jonathan Brooks in camp. So he's very talented. So at least they have depth at the position but I might miss Brooks a little bit in a game like this. It's going to be hard to run the ball for the most part against Iowa State. I think it's going to be hard to manufacture big plays against Iowa State. What does Sark do a great job of? Hitting big plays off play action, creating favorable matchups in the secondary. Well, this is a group that wants to keep everything in front of them and rally up and force you to play offense. They're not going to give up the big plays, and they're going to have to be very methodical, and Quinn Ewers going to have to be really patient in this game as well. I think Texas handles their business, but I would be surprised that this game's not going to come down to the wire. Iowa State is 13-4 against the spread as a home underdog under Matt Campbell since 2016. 
and Texas is one and four against the spread in the last five as a favorite. Now it's time to move into the section of great games without playoff implications. And one of these, you might disagree with me. We'll have the discussion here in just a minute. Let's go with Utah on the road at Arizona. Two teams firmly ranked in the top 20. Utah sitting at 22, Arizona at 17. Arizona started the season three and three. It's one of the great turnarounds of the season so far. All three of their losses, by the way, came by one score. Two of the three came in overtime. Now, Arizona's won four in a row, and they're looking to win five straight for the first time since a six-game winning streak back in 2013-2014. So it's been a while since we've seen Arizona in this type of situation. They still have a legit shot to get to the Pac-12 title game, but that's going to require Oregon to lose one of their final two games to create a tie-breaking scenario behind the league leaders in Washington. So it's not totally out of the realm of possibility, but it feels like the gap is pretty slim for Arizona to slide in there. How many of you guys, self-included, because I'm going to talk to myself here, <laughs> because I, I don't think anybody uh, outside of maybe Jed Fish and the folks in Tucson would have thought that at this point of the season, Arizona would be the second highest ranked three-loss team behind number 15 LSU. How many people thought that? Not Notre Dame, not Kansas State, not Utah, not Tennessee, but Arizona. A lot of those teams ranked in the preseason top 15. Now, Arizona's looking through their rearview mirror to take a peek on those teams as they've gone flying by. And Utah, on the other hand, Two-time defending Pac-12 champ, but they're 3-3 three and three in their last six after a solid start to the season at 4-0. and It's a great matchup in the trenches. And Utah, as we've known for a really long time, they're the most physical team in the Pac-12. They're really strong on both lines of scrimmage. They're great running the football. Well, great, they're good running the football, but they're excellent against the run. They're fifth against the run this year, and that's going to be a real challenge. Jonah Ellis is having an All-American-style season. I mean, he's unbelievable takeover the game at times. 12 sacks, 16 tackles for a loss. He's a complete difference maker there on the edge. The game is going to be really determined, though, by whether or not Arizona can effectively run the football. They might have a first-round pick of their own in their left tackle, Jordan Morgan. He's really done a great job in allowing Jonah Coleman, their running back, to eclipse seven yards per carry. Meanwhile, the Arizona defense, they're 13th against the run in the FBS, allowing under 100 a game. And I remember watching them closely against Washington State. And while well, I'm not trying to make Washington State out to be in, but that was their breakout, right? That was their moments. Like, oh my goodness. Like they had had the close game against SC. I'm like, I'm going to take a peek and really study Arizona this week. I just want just curious, known Jed Fish for a long time, figured I'd take a peek. They have some game wreckers up front defensively. Like they got big physical defensive tackles. They line up in a three-down line like they are they're a handful up front. So if Utah can run the ball well against this front, that's going to say a lot about their offensive line. But the big reason why Arizona's in the spot is the brilliant play of Noah Fafita. Uh he started the last 6 games on the year, he's thrown for nearly seventeen or nearly eighteen hundred yards or so, seventeen thirty-five to be exact. Sixteen touchdowns against just four interceptions. Now he struggled a little bit in the first half against Colorado. Really, the first time that I don't know, he looked human. I mean, <laughs> sorry, we have such a high bar. 
for Noah Fafita. He's not Caleb Williams. No one expects him to just go in and take over the game, but the bar has now been set pretty high with how he's played and how efficiently he's played. But the second half performance was much better. He settled in, didn't flinch, according to Jed Fish, and it seems like things are going to trend in the right direction. Hopefully that was a good learning experience from him. And he's going to be going against Bryson Barnes. Uh, they are 118th throwing the football this year. It's not ideal. Now, we know that Bryson Barnes, however, is, is a pretty good runner. So in the event in which that three-down defensive line gets out of whack or gets a little bit moved around, Bryson Barnes might be able to take off and, and create some opportunities with his legs, even though the yards per carry numbers aren't great. They've been timely. I think he makes good decisions in that area. Arizona has been amazing against the spread this year. They're eight and two. That's the second best cover percentage in the FBS. Who do you guys think is number one? Because I wouldn't have guessed. I wouldn't have gotten this. That'd be UNLV at nine and one against the spread. Utah, however, 15 and four as a road underdog in the last 10 years. I'm taking Arizona in the game. I think Arizona is a little bit more balanced offensively. I think their defense doesn't get nearly enough credit. I think they're going to be able to limit Utah just a little bit. And I think Noah Fafita will make good decisions with the football and not put his defense on the short field while still being able to hopefully control the line of scrimmage, capture the edge a couple of times against a Utah team that's very aggressive, wants to pin their ears back and try to get after the opposing quarterback. Now, here's a game that I would have thought at least five or six weeks ago would headline the show. Not just one playoff contender potentially, but two. UCLA traveling to the Coliseum to take on the Trojans. This will be Saturday, 3.30 Eastern time on ABC. Now, both teams are trying to bounce back from two consecutive losses. UCLA sitting at 6-4, and 3-4 four, and four overall in the Pac-12. They've lost consecutive games to Arizona, which is forgivable, and Arizona State, which is not forgivable. USC has lost to Washington and Oregon. Pretty good teams, okay? So maybe not the end of the world if you're USC, but still, after starting the season 6-0, and man, to have lost four of their last five, think about a loss on Saturday would mean that it'd be the first three-game losing streak of Lincoln Riley's head coaching career. These two teams mirror each other, except they're the completely opposite. Uh, you have a sputtering offense against a sputtering defense. USC's defense, let's start there. Defense coordinator Alex Grinch was dismissed before the game against Oregon, but they still gave up. Passing touchdowns on the first two offensive snaps of 77 and 84 yards against the Ducks. First two offensive pass attempts. Excuse me. Not two snaps. I think it was the first five snaps. But you get the point. Not good. UCLA, on the other hand, their offense, they've struggled, man. I mean, to score 10 points against Arizona and then seven points last week against Arizona State, it's been a real issue. And I think, too, they had three consecutive possessions where they're in Arizona State territory that led to zero points is pretty mind-blowing. So bad offense against bad defense, what gives in this one? Another one that's a huge storyline in this one, is this the end of the Caleb, uh, Caleb Williams era in college football? I, I think most of us assume that it probably is. Assuming he probably opts out of the bowl game, I don't know if he's going to play or not, probably not would be my guess, depending on what bowl game they're ultimately assigned to. But we're talking about a guy that whether you like him, dislike him, you have to acknowledge his greatness. Caleb Williams is a magician. Uh, he's an incredible football player, an incredible football player. And I think this year showcased uh, the ability to completely take over the game in the midst of chaos. Now, I do think there have been times this year where he's maybe tried to do a little too much. Who can blame him? 
I mean, he's probably going into every single game thinking, man, we got we to gotta score 50 to win. They're doing pretty close to that too. Uh, group that's averaging about 45 points a game. That's second in the Pac-12 and second in the country. So they're doing everything that they can possibly do. And I'm just hoping if this is the end, I hope people are able to kind of look back at just how good Caleb Williams has been in this time at both Oklahoma and at SC because he is an all-time great Heisman Trophy winner. And it's been a joy to watch him and a joy to cover him the last couple of years. But his defense has been terrible. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. They're 121st in the FBS. They're allowing more than 40 points in five of the last six games. And they just can't quite figure it out. I already referenced the fact that Bo Nix had a 77, 84-yard touchdown passes on his first two attempts. I mean, it just can't happen. Uh, all in all, it was 412 and four touchdowns last week. But this will be a much more difficult test this week, I think, uh, for Caleb Williams and company going against this UCLA defense. I mean, they have a star in the making in their new defensive coordinator, Danton Lynn. Uh, he's really engineered a unit that's one of the best that we've seen not just in UCLA history, but probably on the entire country. Uh, they're number one, uh, number one in school history currently, uh, averaging about 70 yards given up on the ground a game. They're number one in the country in sacks per game, 3.8 per game. That's pretty amazing when you take that into account. And they're still losing games. I'm not sure how, but that's the way it goes. It's at the end of the Chip Kelly era. Now, I, I've talked to some folks out there. It doesn't sound like that's the case, but a bad result on Saturday could be the end of the road for Chip Kelly. Now, UCLA's athletic director, Martin Jarman, is looking for any reason to kind of hang on to Chip Kelly. They just extended his contract last year and maybe a win over SC. That would kind of quiet the waters just a little bit, but there's a lot of dissatisfaction knowing that he's just 33 and 32 in his six years, but maybe the extension saves him. But he's been dealt a bad hand this year, man. I mean, quarterback injuries are alarming for UCLA at the moment. Dante Moore did not play against Arizona State. It does sound like, according to Chip Kelly, that he was available and practicing on Monday. So far, he's been decent, but has thrown a bunch of picks. That's what true freshmen do. Uh, Ethan Garbers has six touchdowns against three interceptions. has been slightly less efficient, but still only about 94 attempts this year. So he's been in and out of the lineup from time to time, started, then was removed, then started again, and then he's got hurt. So it's been a little dicey. And then Colin Schley, who's been more of a situational, I'm not going to call him a wildcat, but when he's in, he's probably to run the football. And he got most of the looks last week against Arizona State but left the field with an injury. It was replaced by Chase Griffin. So if any of you guys know who's playing quarterback for UCLA, it'd be great information to have. But man, it's hard to feel great about it. But maybe USC's defense is a get-right game. I think USC will ultimately win the game and send Caleb Williams and company out in style. It was not a great season. It was one to forget, but at least maybe they can feel a little bit better about themselves by beating their crosstown rival. I just don't believe in that offense whatsoever that I've seen from UCLA. Number 11 or number 10, Louisville is on the road at Miami. So it'll be Saturday noon Eastern time on ABC. I grouped it with these because I think with where Louisville came in in the rankings, it's hard for me to envision a scenario where they can climb and get all the way into the top four. 
it's not totally insurmountable, especially if Michigan were to lose to Maryland or Ohio State got upset this weekend or you know Texas lost to Iowa State. Is it possible? Sure, but it feels unlikely. So I'm going to group them as a great game, not involving a playoff contender, at least at the moment. The good news is for Louisville, they do clinch a spot in the ACC championship game with a win. If that happens, Jeff Brom would become the fifth head coach to reach the ACC title game in their first full season with the team. The problem is the previous four all lost the game, but it would be pretty decent company. I mean, Jeff Jagosinski at BC back in 2007, Dabo Sweeney in 09, Jimbo Fisher at Florida State in 2010, and then Justin Fuente. He was the first-year head coach at Virginia Tech and made it to the ACC title game back in 2016. It's pretty incredible, though. This will be their first ACC championship game appearance if they get there since joining the conference back in 2014. On paper, I think these teams are very similar. I know you're going to say, hang on a second. How can you possibly make that suggestion? Well, we'll go through it line by line. Let's start with quarterback. You got Tyler Van Dyke for Miami. Very talented player, but has thrown a lot of interceptions this year. On the other side, Jack Plummer. Very talented player, but has thrown a bunch of interceptions this year. Both teams' quarterbacks have accounted for more than 2,000 yards, but they've also thrown for 16 touchdowns. However, the turnovers have been a big part of the equation. That's one. Two, this is where they might be most different, at least at the moment. Louisville has a really dynamic, dynamic duo of running backs. Jawar Jordan, even though he's at times been a little bit slowed by a hamstring injury this year, when he's at his best, he's electric. Great speed runs with better power than you'd assume. And he's a guy that I think has a chance to be a great, great asset, not just in this game, but moving forward throughout the rest of the season for Louisville, if he could get back to 100%. But if he is not at 100%, then he'll be spelled by Isaac Garendo, a transfer from Wisconsin who's been excellent and has showcased some home run hitting potential the last couple of weeks that I don't think anyone realized that he had. On Miami's side of the coin, they go with a four-running back rotation. Mark Fletcher, the freshman, has been thrust into the starting line at the last couple weeks, but A.J. Allen's been a little banged up. He's now back available. Uh, Henry Parrish has been a little banged up. He was the starter at the opener. He's hopefully back available. Don Chaney's been solid. So they have four guys that all complement each other pretty well, but they don't have really the one-two super dynamic punch that Louisville has. So the running back room might be the most different. At wide receiver, I think you have stars that are kind of blossoming blossoming into their own. Jamari Thrash at Louisville, who's been a guy for quite a while. They've been a little bit banged up since the Duke game, but still has the chance to take the ball at the distance anytime he gets it. And then for Miami, Jacoby George really did some things last week against Florida State that make you think he's going to be the go-to guy on the perimeter for them as they move forward. Really did a great job after the catch and showcased some potential Last week against a really high-quality Florida State secondary. In the slot, they have Xavier Restrepo, who's a really dynamic weapon on third down, but hasn't been as involved the last couple of weeks for whatever reason. So I think those teams mirror each other a little bit at wide receiver. At tight end, not real huge on involving the tight ends in the passing game. 
They're really used more in the run game with the exception of Joey Gatewood for Louisville, who does a pretty good job and I think has a chance to be an effective pass catcher down the road, but is still raw as he's transitioned from quarterback to tight end. Offensive lines, I think both are excellent. Louisville's done a really good job, have lost their right guard earlier in the year, but they're really good up front. Miami, I think that's the strength of their team, that offensive front. I think both defensive lines are amazing. Ruben Bain, the freshman for Miami, Ashton Gelati, the outstanding edge presence. He can slide inside too if you want him. I think he's poised for an All-American contending season there for the Louisville defense. Second level, players are really good. In the back end, I think they're secondary. That's where Louisville might have an advantage. I think Quincy Riley is probably as good a corner as you'll find in the entire ACC. He's really, really high-end, can play press man, can play off zone. The guy can do it all and should probably be matched up with Jacoby George the entire game. So you look at this, it's pretty amazing how these teams kind of mirror each other. It's going to come down to who makes the biggest mistake. Miami has been pretty good at home this year. They're 5-1 and one at home this year. Their lone loss was a game they basically won against Georgia Tech with the exception of the fumble and the big plays given up defensively. Louisville's 4-10-1 against the spread in the last 15 games as a road favorite. And they're 5-1 against the spread with more than six days rest since the start of last season. So it should be a great one down there in South Florida. Now we get to the next grouping. We already did playoff contenders that are involved in tight games, non-playoff contenders involved in tight games. Now we're going to get to some important games that involve conference title races. All right, let's start with the Big 12. Now, prior to last week, <laughs> there was some movement there in, in, the, in the Big 12 rule book, which, by the way, needed to happen. There was a rule in there that said, well, we are going to ignore the head-to-head result because Kansas State and Oklahoma don't play each other. It's like, come on, man, this is not that difficult. They removed that rule book, so it basically means that Oklahoma State controls their own destiny even after they got destroyed by UCF last week. But there is, at the moment, a four-way tie for second in the conference standings with a 5-2 and two league record. Oklahoma, Kansas State, Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma State, and Iowa State. Now, a lot of people doing the simulations, well, what if this team beats this team, this team beats this team, this team beats this team, what have you? Well, I'll just tell you this. If the favorites win out, now, granted, chaos can always happen in college football, but if the favorites win out in the final two weeks, the final standings will look like this. Texas will be 8-1. and one. They'll be heading to the conference championship game. Then Oklahoma State will be heading to the conference championship game as well at 7-2. and two. Oklahoma will also be 7-2 and two, but lose the head-to-head against Oklahoma State. Kansas State 7-2. and two. They would lose the head-to-head against Oklahoma State as well. Which leads me to the next point. Oklahoma State right now traveling to Houston. They're about a touchdown favorite. This will be Saturday, 4 o'clock Eastern time on ESPN2. They already hold the tiebreakers. Already talked about that. Ollie Gordon, though, I need to see a little more from the run game for Oklahoma State because last week was mind-boggling. Just 25 carry, or 25 yards on 12 carries for a guy that came in as the nation's leading rusher and in all likelihood, maybe the Doak Walker Award winner. But the longest carry from scrimmage was five yards, and they averaged just two yards a carry. Uh, so not what you want. He averaged about 10 yards per carry in the six games prior. So hopefully the run game could get going a little bit against Houston. Part of the reason why they couldn't get it going last week, the O-line's been banged up. I'll be watching that closely. And now starting center, Joe Mahalski, didn't practice last week. 
He started the game and played 55 snaps, so that's encouraging. Hopefully, he'll be all right. But they're also without last week's starting guards, uh, Jason Brooks, and then Cole Birmingham was injured in the game. So they're they're kind of a little bit of a mash unit along the front. So hopefully, Oklahoma State can regain their form, but Houston is in desperation mode. A couple trends to account for in this game. Oklahoma State is seven, uh, 13 and 7 against the spread in the last 20 games following a loss, and the under is 7-0 in November or later games involving Oklahoma State since 2022. Another team hoping to punch their way to the Big 12 title game would be Kansas State. The way they get in, they need to win out, and they need Texas to lose once. Uh, They have game at Kansas, then they got Iowa State at their place. They don't currently own any tiebreakers over anybody but they've won 14 straight against Kansas dating back to 2009. They have more 40-point wins than they do single-digit wins in the last 14-game win streaks. They need a win to stay alive in the Big 12 title game. I think they'll go on the road and get it against the Jayhawks on Saturday at 7 o'clock Eastern time. A couple trends in this one. Kansas State is 4-1 against the spread in the last five as a favorite, and they've covered their last four meetings against these two teams. And then finally... The other end of the coin, the Oklahoma Sooners, they're at BYU Saturday noon Eastern time on ESPN. Oklahoma, heavy favorite in this game. Their path is a little bit murky. They have to win out. They need Texas to win out, and they need Oklahoma State to lose. So can it happen? Absolutely can. They're at BYU. They have TCU at their place. They should be in pretty good shape. They hold the tiebreakers over Texas and Iowa State. And Dylan Gabriel had maybe the best performance of his career last week. He was responsible for eight touchdowns against West Virginia. That's most in the game in program history. It matched the Big 12 record set by B.J. Simmons back in 2003 and matched the West Virginia's, uh, matched West Virginia's Geno Smith in 2012. BYU is 4-1 against the spread in the last five games. It's a home underdog but they're 0-4 against the spread against teams with a winning record this season. I think Oklahoma will handle their business, but I would be surprised if they covered the number. I would. I think BYU's got a last gasp in them. It just depends on whether or not they're healthy at quarterback. If they are, I would definitely I would definitely lean in favor of BYU against the spread, but I think Oklahoma's going to be way too much to potentially pull it out. ACC title game implications. Louisville, complete control of their own destiny, but if they go down to Miami at noon then all eyes will be on North Carolina at Clemson. If Louisville loses and North Carolina wins out, then North Carolina could find their way into the conference title game. They are looking to have consecutive seasons with nine-plus wins for the first time since 1996 and 1997. Meanwhile, Clemson is 5-1 and one in Death Valley this year. Their lone loss came in overtime against Florida State. A loss to North Carolina would give Clemson five ACC losses this season, which would be the most in a season since 1998. They had seven losses that year. A couple trends to take into account in this one. North Carolina's 5-1 and one against the spread in the last six as an underdog. Clemson is 1-4 and four against the spread this season against teams with a winning record. I think Clemson will probably play this one real tight for a while. I think North Carolina's got too much. I think North Carolina wins this game on the road at Clemson. I think they have too much firepower, and I think that Drake May will be able to get the ball out quick enough to not allow that pass rush for Clemson to get home and make life difficult on him. And then in the Big Big 10 title game race, 
Iowa clinches the West with a win against Illinois. Iowa is 8-1-1 one one against the spread since 2021 when the line is between minus 3 and plus 3. They are a three-point favorite against the Illini this weekend. The Illini is going back with Luke Altmeyer. I don't know why. Paddock was amazing the last couple of weeks. Illinois is 2-8 against the spread this season. That's tied for the second-worst cover percentage in the FBS. I think Iowa will get this done, and I think get done in convincing fashion. All right, now we get some big names, big brands, and big favorites. Michigan is on the road at Maryland. This will be Saturday, noon Eastern. Michigan enters Saturday with 999 career program wins. It can become the first FBS program with 1,000. And, of course, everybody going to be paying close attention to the courts, see whether or not Jim Harbaugh is allowed on the sideline because the whole – ruling will go down on Friday afternoon at some point. So check back in. Maybe we'll do an emergency. Always college football, depending on the outcome of that decision. A couple trends in this one. Michigan is 4-0 against the spread on the road this season. They're one of 10 teams without an against the spread loss on the road. And Maryland is 1-4 against the spread in the last five as a home underdog. I think Michigan will destroy Maryland. I don't think the matchup's very good for Maryland. They played them close last time, last year. I think that was a better Maryland team. This Michigan team, I think, however, is better than they were last year. And that was kind of early in the season. And I don't get the sense that Michigan's the type to be looking ahead to what next week might entail. Minnesota is on the road in Columbus against Iowa, uh, Ohio State. This will be Saturday at 4 o'clock Eastern time. Including conference championship games, Ohio State is 39-0 and under Ryan Day against every Big Ten school not named Michigan. It's pretty wild, is it not? I don't know how I came across that nugget, but it fascinated me, so I figured I'd put that one in there for you. As far as breaking it down, I just want to continue to see Ohio State progress offensively. I know they're elite on defense. I don't know if I'm going to learn a lot about the game against Minnesota, but I just want to see the offense continue to take off the way it did last week. Can they build on that performance? A couple trends in this game. Ohio State is 7-2-1 and one against the spread in the last 10 as a home favorite, and the under is 8-2 and two in games involving Ohio State this season that's tied for the lowest under percentage in the FBS. And then number six, Oregon, is on the road at Arizona State. This is Saturday, 4 o'clock Eastern time. Oregon clinches a spot in the Pac-12 championship game with a win and lost by Arizona and Oregon State. I think Arizona, like I said earlier, probably going to win. I think Oregon State probably going to win too. So... I think it's unlikely that things get clinched for Oregon this weekend. They'll have to take things to Corvallis next week with the spot on uh, spot in the championship potentially on the line. It'll be the first meeting between Arizona State and Oregon since 2019. The Ducks have lost two of the last three against Arizona State, and both losses came in Tempe. Each of those three games were decided by three points or fewer, too. Now, the Sun Devils have won two of their last three after starting the season one and six. They had lost six straight after a season opening win, lost six straight, and have now won two of the last three. But for Oregon, if you look at the game last week, there were a couple self-inflicted mistakes. That's all I want to see from the Ducks. I just want them to be a little bit cleaner as it relates to penalties. They had 13 penalties for 120 yards and missed a field goal there with about seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter. So just clean up things that are self-inflicted and I'll feel real good about the Ducks winning this one in convincing fashion. Oregon is 10-4-1 against the spread in their last 15 as a double-digit favorite, but Arizona State is 6-0-1 against the spread in the last seven 
as an underdog. I wouldn't be surprised if this game is close for like a quarter and then Oregon revs it in the high gear and they take off in preparing for what should be an incredible game against Oregon State next week. We kick off the final segment every single Thursday with our giant killers. Now, remember, we're not predicting outright upsets necessarily, but these are teams perceived to be giants, and I think it could be close. I think these teams need to play really well to win, and these are teams that I would be real mindful of because I think that these teams are dangerous, and I would not want to mess around with them. I actually have a decent amount for you today. A couple giant killers that you need to be real careful with this week. I know they're favored in the game, so is this really a giant killer? But I think Oregon State's going to get Washington. Uh, I don't. I, I don't think that's a huge shock to anybody, especially knowing that how well Oregon State has played at home. So we will take Oregon State this weekend in a giant killer scenario to knock off a previously undefeated Washington team. I think you need to be real careful if you're Louisville, Miami. I know things last week didn't go their way, but I think Miami's a very good football team. I think those teams match up pretty well. And I think Louisville's very talented. I think Miami's very talented. One team's record is 9-1. The other team's record is 6-4. and four. But I don't feel like the gap is that significant. And it's going to be important, I think, for Louisville to play really well to go and get a win on senior day against the Hurricanes. Another one. I think it's going to be a very interesting game for the Texas Longhorns. I think Iowa State has rebounded and played nicely. Texas seems to play to the level of their competition. I think Iowa State's extremely well coached, and I would not be surprised if that game goes down to the wire with the clones very much in the ball game, especially can get off to a decent start and then hopefully put all the pressure on the Texas team that is fighting for their playoff live. And then finally, the last giant killer that I'm going to give you is Houston. I think Houston's in desperation mode. They're four and six. They've got to win out to get to a bowl game. I think Iowa State was exposed a little, or Oklahoma State last week was exposed. And I don't think that Houston's an elite football team, but I think in a desperation situation, chance to play the spoiler, I think Dana Holgerson would love nothing more than to get a big win potentially against a team that is in the mix of the Big 12 championship race. So I give me a four this week. There's a few others that I might maybe, maybe we'll tweet them out if there's a few that come to mind here in the later stages as we're putting a bow on our preparation for the week. A couple title game clinching scenarios. In the American, SMU clinches a spot with a win and losses by both Tulane and UTSA. Conference USA, New Mexico State and Liberty have both clinched in the CUSA championship game, and the Flames will host. MAC, Toledo's already clinched the West. Miami, Ohio clinches the East. My uh, The Mountain West Air Force clinches a spot in the Mountain West with a win and losses by both Boise State and Fresno State. UNLV clinches a spot in the Mountain West title game with a win and losses by Boise State, Fresno State, and San Jose State. And then the Sun Belt. Troy's already clinched the West. Coastal Carolina clinches the East, and we were with losses by Appalachian State and George Southern. Now that it's official that James Madison's appeal to the NCAA has been denied. So we'll be interesting to see how those conference championship title game clinching scenarios work out. We'll revisit them, of course, again on the Monday edition of Always College Football. We continue to appreciate all the support that you guys have shown the show. We love you guys and we appreciate you very much. We look forward to coming back on Sunday, recapping what should be a very exciting weekend of college football and know that you can like rate and subscribe to the podcast where you get your podcast you get that thumbs up on that espn college football youtube channel that'd be awesome as well and for all of us here 
at Always College Football. For Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.